The message is called When God Doesn't Seem to Make Sense, and the emphasis is on seem, because it can seem to us sometimes that God doesn't make sense, but rest assured, God knows what he's doing. And, uh, you know, we started this last week, this, uh, this, this piece within the larger series. So the larger series is on growth, transition, and change, and this whole idea of these, you know, sort of breakthrough points in life where we're leaving one thing and moving into another. But we also zeroed in. Last week we started this, and we're going to spend a couple more weeks, weeks with it as well. The growth transition in Jesus' life, particularly that point in his life when he was 12 years old. And the Bible tells us that he was, he was moving into a different phase of his life. And there's this remarkable incident that occurs when Jesus comes to the temple at the age of 12. And, of course, we had a lot of, you know, fun talking about it. But, you know, he was also, he was lost. Uh, his parents lost him. They didn't know where he was. And we, we talked about that, and we're going to look at that again and sort of set the context up. But, again, uh, in fact, why don't we just go ahead and read this through, and we'll, we'll pick back up. It says in verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and we talked about this. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom or the tradition of the feast, and Jesus went there with them. And, when they had, and we talked about how that was a long journey, and when they had finished those, the days in Jerusalem, they returned. They returned back to, to Nazareth in the Galilee. But the boy Jesus, we're told, lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother, they didn't know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey, and they sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. And no one knew where he was. And we, we talked about this. Now, just again, to put it into some type of a visual geographical context, and I know we, we do this, and many of us know this already, but not everybody does necessarily. And it's good anyway for us just to kind of remember that these events take place in real time and space, in a real particular place. And just putting up where Jerusalem is in relation to Nazareth. It's good for us to get this in our mind geographically. There are a lot of cultural ramifications to it as well. Jerusalem, still in the center of the world today. I mean, it is, it is such a key city in the world. Uh, so much is riding there. It's right off the Mediterranean. You can see it. Um, you also realize that even today, 80 miles up north, you can go see Nazareth. In Jesus' day, Nazareth was, you didn't have any vehicle transportation, so it was an 80-mile journey by foot most of the time. And when they made that trip from Nazareth to Gal- to, of Galilee down to Jerusalem and Judea, it was a significant journey, but it was also really fun. And they had an expectation of joining with so many people who were coming from all over the known ancient world into Jerusalem to celebrate and acknowledge this amazing time that celebrated God's deliverance of Israel. Now, I say that because... I think it's important for us to remember that also in the north and the south there was a distinction that the northerners were tended to be viewed as more rural and uh, less maybe trained and educated than their counterparts in the south, in Judea, which was a center of cosmopolitan ideas. So people would, it was a city where the, the, the great and the powerful came to Jerusalem. The highest intelligence um, and the discussions and the trainings Jerusalem was the center. Jesus had gone from his birth after a a quick departure for a couple of years into Egypt where they were told to go to till Herod died and then after a a very small amount of time returned to Nazareth and Galilee. That's where Jesus grows up. It's very different. It's hilly, uh, rural. It's it's a whole different feel than Jerusalem would have been. So a much different environment. Anyway, they made their way from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. They celebrate the feast, and then we're told that what? A day's journey, a day's journey from Jerusalem back to Nazareth. 
that they make before they recognize that Jesus is lost. We talked about how Mary probably, because typically the women and the men might, would be separated, reunited at the end of the day. It's very possible, probable, likely that Mary assumed Jesus was with Joseph and the men. Now he's 12. He wants to be with the men. And then there was this, this assumption probably on Joseph's part. Oh, no, he's with Mary. He always is. In fact, neither one of them knew that, that he wasn't with the other. And when they came together that evening, nobody could find Jesus. Jesus was lost. And the last time people said they had seen him was where? Back in Jerusalem. So they go, oh, we got to get back there as soon as possible. And we're told from this passage, right, that they decided to make, it couldn't go at night, so they had to wait till daybreak. And, and they traveled back for the entire day's journey. So what that means is one day traveling, then one day they spend the night, then one day back, they get into Jerusalem, it's about nightfall. So they spent the second night not knowing where Jesus was. It's not until the third day, the next day, that they find him, um, you know, having been completely, um, you know, sort of terrorized by the idea that something has happened to him. They were in just full panic mode. And so it, that's the setting. Now, one, one of the things we realize is they are going to desperately be seeking the one. In fact, the last phrase there in verse 45, so they, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem seeking him. We talked about how important it is to seek him. And they were seeking the one, not so ironically, that was given by God to seek us. Jesus is God seeking us, the one who seeks the many. And if you want to get down to it, the story of Jesus is the story of the one who's come to give, to give everything he can to find us. And he came to seek and save the lost. And so, you know, we come to this, this verse following, verse 46, and we, we come to this, I think, this amazing verse. And there's so much for us here, and I want us to sit with it and look at it. It says, so now, after it was three days... They finally found him. They found him. Where does it say? They found him in the temple. And he was in the temple. And when they actually finally found him, they found him in the midst of these teachers. And the teachers in the temple at that time would have been, you know, the best, the cream of the crop, the, the, the most powerful figures of that day would have been gathered there. And that's where they find Jesus, in Jerusalem, in the, in the temple, and in the place in the temple where the high-level exchanges were occurring. And they were shocked. It says that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them, but also asking questions. And we would find later on that, that his questions had a way of getting into things. In fact, Jesus' questions oftentimes were able to peel back the hearts of human beings. He really did, he really utilized question asking as a, as a method of exposure and it was a great teaching me mechanism for Jesus. Now, one of the things that, and I'll just kind of list these things, because I looked at that 46th verse, and I don't know if you can see it, but there's a lot going on here, more than meets the eye. And I'm going to just kind of put it under the banner of they found him and then move through this. But I'm going to start out by saying when, when they came, when they finally found Jesus, they found him, and this is important to me and to, for us, in the temple. That is, and we would say they found him in church. All right? The, the fact is, you know, and I, um, it's, it's still where he is found a lot. Um, and many of us, I will say my own, you know, my own, in my own life, some of the key moments in my life with God occurred in church. And uh, occurred when God spoke to me. It was an open place, a dedicated place, much like what we're doing now, intentionally making space to listen for God's voice with others, to hear his word shared 
Um, and in the context of those places where the word comes, it's, it, many times we are altered in the Lord's house. We can find it. And this doesn't mean we can't find Jesus in other places, but there's something unique about the Lord's house. It's not coincidental that he was found, they found him in the temple. They found him in the, You know, Jesus had a love for the house of the Lord. One of the things that caused him to, remember when he purges the temple, he says, you've made my father's house. That's what he called it. When he has his disciples come together, he has, it's important for them in, in that last moment before the cross that they come together in a room together. And, they, and he institutes communion. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood. We sang about it. My life that will be given for you. Well, as long as you do this, listen, look at each other. You do this in remembrance of me. And then, and then think about it in the upper room. It, it's where when the day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, you read about it. But in Acts 1 and 2, they're gathered together in a room that they knew. It's where they, where they gathered to have their church. But they also had a love for the temple, and they would go to. Jesus was a man of the temple. He would go there frequently. And one of the things, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to someone, and they were sharing about, they were trying to make a contrast between Jesus and religion, and, in, and I understood what they were trying to say, but, and I know it was well-intentioned, but they actually missed the fact that Jesus was extremely religious. I mean, he really was. He didn't come to eradicate the law. He said, I have come to fulfill the law. And he was a full participant in the religious life of his people. That's a very important piece. That, that you know, he, he had a high view of, of, and again, it wasn't that he was anti-religion. I know what people mean by that. They, a lot of times they, oh, that's just man's thing, but Jesus is different. Actually, Jesus blends the two. He distinguishes between bad religion and good religion. What he says is, yeah, hypoc- a lot of his enemies were, were those who were hypocritical and pharisaical, but Jesus never threw out the idea of having dedicated time and practice. He himself modeled that life. It's one of the key things for growing well. And I'm, not trying to, I'm just trying to make the point that you know, when we talk about following him, that it is such an important piece that we have to be thinking about. Because he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. In the book of Hebrews, there's this great verse, 10th chapter, 24, 25, I think is the verses. says this, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, to encourage one another, stimulate one another, to be a people who live out our faith. You know, and then he says this, and you know, considering one another and gathering together, gathering together, which is what you're, we're all doing, and so much the more, um, you know, gathering, do not neglect gathering together, but, but it, as the manner of some is, he says, don't neglect coming together as some do. He says, but instead gather all the more as we see that day, the day of his coming approaching. He was saying is, it's even more valuable. Jesus models it. David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Jesus was found in the temple. Secondly, this one, we may not have noticed it, but it's so cool to me because it's like, I know the context doesn't mean it, but what does it say? It says they found him when? Right out out of that beginning. It says now it was after three days. They found him on the third day. Now, at the time, that meant nothing. It was just like they found him. Yeah, it took them the third day to find him. But you know what later on? That word, that phrase, would come to mean so much more on the other side of the cross. Everything would end up riding on the third day. It would become to mean for those of us 
who would follow Christ, it would come to mean life and resurrection so that when we would say the third day, every, we know we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And you know, it's, and I'll tell you right now, they found him on the third day and there is a sense that that is where he can only truly really be known for who he is on the third day. It's one thing to say and embrace Jesus as a teacher. It's one thing to say he was a very, very good man. It's one thing to say he was someone who was a savior who kind of like he died for us because he loved us so much and he went to the cross for us. And I embrace, but, but here's the thing. If the cross is all there is, then it really is a sad end. What makes the message of Christ have value at the end of the day is the third day because it's the empty tomb. Because what it's saying is death could not defeat him. Life is stronger than death. And that the promise in Christ means that his death for us brings life to us. Everything depends on the third day. The third day is the key. And when we embrace him, not just as a savior or a good teacher, but as the living Lord who can radically alter a life and who gives us life beyond this life, it changes the entire human equation. We understand that. He said, listen to me, I am the resurrection and the life. I am this. And I want to give you my life. And, and death will not hold me. And because I live, you will live as well. A great promise. They found him on the third day. They found him in the temple, found him on the third day. What else did they find him doing? What was he doing when they came? They found him, interesting, listening, and learning, asking questions. That's something we shouldn't run past. What does it tell us? What does it remind us? It reminds us that Jesus was himself a vigorous learner. And when Mary and Joseph found him, he was in the middle of a discussion, listening and asking questions with the great teachers of the day. And it must have been an amazing thing to behold. I mean, when we think about it in our mind's eye, you see Jesus there engaging in these conversations, these theological discussions with, these, with, the, with the best and the brightest, and he's engaging them. He's 12 years old. Some of them must have said, who is this? Where, who taught him? Where did he come from? I think it's like, is he somebody's student? Who, how, how is this happening? And, and we know that that was what was going on because what, his questions must have been deep, penetrating, and um, precise. And we know that he was, later on, that was going to be a way in which he spoke to people. Uh, but it must have been compelling and unsettling all at once because he was, he was 12 years old. In fact, we know that, that they were stunned. Look at verse 40, 47. It says that all who heard him were astonished. That's the word used there. Astonished at his understanding and not just his understanding, but his answers. So it was give and take going on right there. And so here you have Jesus sitting in the midst of these scholars, these scribes, these teachers. So again, some of the best minds in Jerusalem at the time. And they're absolutely astonished at his understanding and his answers. And it really is a foreshadow of what is to come. A little glimpse of glory um, but the time of the full unveiling was still 18 years away. But it was a beginning moment. Now, we're told in verse 48 that they were astonished, uh, the, the, all the teachers and, the, and, the, and these, these powerful men who, by the way, Mary and Joseph would have never, ever interacted with, with this group. We're talking about an elite group. And that just wouldn't have happened. 
sort of find, so it says in verse 48, it says that when they all saw him, they were amazed. They were amazed. When they finally found Jesus, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, look at that verse, son, why have you, why have you done this to us? Do you understand that your father and I, we've been trying to find you, we've been searching for you anxiously? What have, what have you done? And, and, and we're told that in the astonishment then of the gathered rabbis was met by an equally astonished mother and father. So astonishment is everywhere. The, the rabbis are, they're all astonished at him. And then Mary and Joseph, when they find him, they're astonished. What are you doing here? We've been looking everywhere for you. And for, for there he was in the middle of that room, freely interacting with these great and the powerful and, and um, intense. It was an intense thing. It must have been an intense scene. And by the way, seemingly Jesus was undisturbed by their lack of contact. I mean, it had been three days. And it was like gut-wrenching days for them. And it's like Jesus was very careful. He was like, oh, yeah, hey, good to see you, right? I mean, there's an idea of, wait, do you understand what you've been doing? I mean, what's interesting here, we've been looking everywhere for you. We had no idea where you were. And one of the things that's pretty clear here is that this tells us a lot. Think about it. It's like, for one, it suggests that Jesus had lived a modest and somewhat uneventful childhood. And by the way, the reason the Bible tells us so little about his first 12 years is because there probably wasn't much to tell. In fact, it's possible that even Mary and Joseph, let me, let's just consider this, and I'm not trying to be dogmatic about it, but I just think it's worth considering. As the ordinary years passed by, it's quite possible, and I, I think it, it seems likely, that they had settled into a way of relating to Jesus that had very little to do with his mysterious and miraculous birth, uh, conception, birth, and infancy. In other words, what had been so amazing and almost stunningly extraordinary at the beginning of his life seemed to settle down into the ordinariness of life to the extent that they're relating to him far... Mary, think about it, and, and just stay with me. It's not suggesting that Jesus is not the Son of God, but just... For a moment, think about the reaction. When she comes to him, what does she not say? She does not go, oh, Jesus, Messiah, <laughs> son of the living God. We've been searching everywhere for you. Now, I, I, what does she say? Son, what have you done? Do you understand how long your father and I have been searching for you? We've been looking everywhere for you for three days. We thought something happened to you. How could you be so unconcerned? Do you understand the panic and the anxiety that we've been walking through? So what are you doing? Jesus! Jesus, why would you do this to us? Jesus. Right? That's the idea. And I'm going to su suggest that they, they were troubled because the way that they were, and it's almost like Jesus, you're going to see this next week. He's going to say, almost like what they had tucked away, and we'll see this next weekend when we look at it. He's going to basically say is that, that there's something more, and I need to remind you of it. You've tucked it away, but I need to remind you of it and bring it back. And it's going to be fascinating to watch the little exchange that occurs and sit with it as Jesus sort of just says something. And then they go, yeah. You know, it's, it's not unlike, somebody mentioned to me that it's not unlike 
we have this, we have this moment with God. And it can be radically transformative for some of us. And what's normal is that as time goes by, what was something so powerful and expressive and intense, all of a sudden, in the ordinariness of life, we can very easily start to lose something of what that was to where we slip into a way of living with God that is not really honoring the miraculous. And, 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 the, and that, so it's sort of like where that moment is sort of lost some of its power in our lives. And so then we have these moments where God transitions into a change and we're reawakened to things that we had forgotten. Something that we started taking for granted. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, yeah. I, yes, I, I remember. These transitional moments sometimes are a return back to something that has diminished over time in our life with the Lord. Okay, quickly now. Just stick with this in the final minutes that we have together here. I want to take it a little step further and zero in on it. As we make our way into this new year, because this is a big part of what was driving what we've been doing, because we, we're only three weeks into this, right? As we make our way into this new year, we talked about how we're going to have times of growth and transition. And I'm going to suggest that, it, that it's important for us to remember a couple of things that are based out of what we've just shared. One, maybe as important as anything, is that anxious times provide the opportunity to seek the Lord with even greater intensity and desperation. Mary and Joseph desperately wanted to find Jesus. They sought him anxiously. They were frantic, seemingly searching for him everywhere. Uh, in their desperation, they needed to find him. Years later, Jesus would say, if you seek me, you will find me. Ask, it shall be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door shall be opened. Now, whether or not those are three pieces, each saying the same thing, just in a different way, or whether they are, as some people think, degrees of desperation, asking, seeking, knocking, that they all picture something of an intensity about finding and asking God to move in some way in our lives. Can you hear me when I say this? Um, that I think that there have been times in lives when we're more desperate than other times. And I have found that even, you know, again, at the end of the day, it's our own story that we tell the best. But, uh, you know, here's the thing. I've found that sometimes in these crisis places in life where it's really tough, maybe some of us are walking there right now. It's possible. Or maybe we see it coming down the road, and it's scary. But I've, you know what I've noticed? That in those times, those anxious times, those desperate place times where, man, I really need you, God. And I'm very aware of what's going on. My, in those heightened times um, where we feel pressure or fear or concern about what we cannot control, when we're sensing something like they did was lost and we're really worried about it, in those places... I've noted that that's when often our spiritual senses um, are sharpened. And one of the values I've noted is that in these desperate places, these anxious times in our lives, these transitional places, they can be times when our, our, our spiritual focus is really sharpened. It's, it's, it, we re our senses get sharpened at a spiritual level. We're far more attuned to what God is doing. Because we know why? Because we're listening differently. And our emotions are raw. And in that raw, open place, yeah, we're more prone to having different types of reactions. But you know what? We also tend to be more open to the new thing God might want to do. And not only that, I found that in those places, we oftentimes find ourselves getting out of ruts that we've gotten ourselves into. Remember what I was trying to say about Mary and Joseph? That it's quite possible that as the years had gone by, their sense of this is how we relate to you, Jesus, 
And Jesus was about to say, but there's a change coming here. And frequently, we get ourselves stuck in grooves, and we just start going through the motion. But life's too precious to live it sloppily. It's, it's a gift with limited time attached. It's limited. I try to remind myself of that. Especially when I start getting, feeling sorry for myself about something or getting, getting stuck somewhere. Lord, quicken my heart. Remind me that your path is a vital path. Because you know what happens? We find, we find is that free, frequently the growth transitions are those places that force us, listen, um, to wrestle. Wrestle with our fears and our identity. A lot of times we've, we, we are, our loss brings into question our identity. And, and so we wrestle with these things. And sometimes in these places of transition, God is trying to strip away things and, and there's stuff happening and we're wrestling with, with, we're wrestling with the idea of trusting God. And, and in those places of wrestling, we, we find that things start to grow and change in us. And you know what I've learned? Not, that, that oftentimes, not always, because we can mishandle stuff and double down, but a lot of times we look back, and it's not until we are through the crisis, we look back on it and we go, wow. You know, just like Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? He, here he was betrayed by his brothers. They sold him into slavery. Uh, they, they, they humiliated him, stripped him down, sold him off, left. You want to talk about family dysfunction, right? That was... And they throw him off, and they leave him, and he'll never see him again. Well, Joseph ends up coming back by the time it's all said and done. He's sitting in power. He can now pay them back. And they realize it. In that moment of realization, Joseph turns and he says, listen to me. I mean you no harm. What you, and he doesn't sugarcoat it, he says, what you, you meant for evil, God has brought good from. And what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And it doesn't change what you did, but what it is is a saying is that God, God brought good out of it. That's what he does. And you know what? A lot of times it's not until the this other side of the crisis and we look back on our situation, our transition, we go, wow, that was so bad. But you know what? I learned so much about myself with God. I grew. I had to wrestle. I had to learn. I had to struggle. But out of that, a, a different person, something was developed. I learned about the grace of God in a way that I wouldn't have learned. I grew in my empathy to other people who maybe I maybe in the past I wouldn't have had that with because I didn't really. See, when you struggle sometimes, it creates all kinds of possibilities. And on the other side of it, often we look back. Not that we would ever say, oh, I wish I could go back. None of us want to go and do stuff. There's, I mean, when you're trying to keep your head above water and just survive, sometimes surviving is the victory. But then on the other side of it, we go, but you know what? A lot of good came out of it. We learn. I learned so much there. Secondly, quickly, it, it's not that. Not only is it an issue about anxious times teaching us how to be more desperate and intense, but also it's a time when we get to, if you think of it this way, following Jesus, um, is a, is a, it's a reminder that we are to be a, a kind of spiritually inquisitive and intellectually growing people. Just stay with me on this because Jesus modeled that. And I, I mean, how can I say it? We, he, he listened. He learned. Um, there was an intellectual vitality to him, and so it is to be with those of us who would follow him. Our faith is to be a, a rigorous, lively kind of thinking faith that stretches us, grows us, forces us to, uh, yes, 
work with, wrestle with, that maybe that's the word today, with concepts that are ageless, eternal, practical, and true. It's part of the reason why I always encourage everyone to be in a small group with others who are also seeking to live a vigorous life with God because it's there when we learn to, to be with one another, train with one another. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. That is a fallacy by far. It was meant to be shared. It's meant to be, we're meant to be vulnerable, but vulnerability often comes only when there's an element of trust that's established. Trust is based, as many of us know, on consistent response patterns, and we feel free to share with one another. Because the Bible says that when we do that, though, we create the capacity for real healing and strength and growth to take place, because none of us ever really can follow Christ all by ourselves as well as we could if we had others walking with us in this journey of faith. It's meant to be done together because some of us will have times, all, I'll say it, all of us will have times when we struggle and when we're afraid or when we feel beat up and we need someone else to come next to us and say, hey, you know what? Don't give up. I'm with you. God's with us. Don't be afraid. Um, don't be defeated. We're going to get through this. Let's pray together. Let's believe together. Let's have confidence together. You pick me up, someday I'll need to be picked up. That's how it works. It's not about perfection. It's about being open and real and growing in the grace of God. That's what we're about. Authenticity, real faith that's vibrant. Now, Jesus was an intellectual. There's no question. He says, he says listen to me, because he was mixing it up with the intellectuals. He says, listen, you, when you love God, he quoted the Shema. He says, love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your mind, strength, and soul. All of your heart. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In mind. He was including, he was saying it's not just a thoughtless faith. But that, that so there's a rigor. There's a, I'm a growing, I'm stretching, I'm growing, I'm learning. I keep, I'm trying to keep this thing alive. It's not like, oh, I got my beliefs now, so I never really push into it. No, I'm going to work with it. I'm going to keep growing, keep learning, reading, interacting. It's an expansive life with God. It's, it's about us growing in our understanding of who he is, his words, how it interacts with our world around us, the people I'm with. It's about learning, growing, becoming. And on top, but here's the thing. Even as we seek to be a people who are intellectual vitality, we need to be guard against the possibility, which I think is also there, becoming cynical and uh, suspicious and, and always uh, kind of seeing what isn't going well, and that is a real danger of overthinking. They're both, listen, because you, know you know why I say that? Because Jesus, who, is, who was the most intellectually vibrant person who ever walked in this world, said also, if you want to know how to get close to God, let me tell you something. You're going to have to come into, and he says the phrase, to enter into the kingdom. He means to enter into a vital, vibrant relationship with God. When to do that, you're going to need to come as a little child. And what is a little child? I mean, it was like, what? Yeah, that's what I just said. Like someone who is open to wonder and faith, who can believe, who's willing to lay aside their greatness for a moment and come into a place of vulnerability. That simple invitation is the access point in the kingdom, not childish, childlikeness. And that leads to this final piece, which is this. It's okay to bring our questions to God. And I really think, I think it's important for us to be aware of that. Um, there are going to be times where we don't understand. You know what it's like, Mary? We're going to say, what are you doing, Jesus? Why did you do that with Lord? What are you, what's going on? Why did you put us through this? There'll be these times where we'll feel like, God, is, God look, how do you let this happen? Not that you did it. I'm not saying you did it. But I'm saying this, this is what's happening to me. Where are you? This is, you why did you do this to us? 
And in those places, it's really important that we remember that the Lord is, <laughs> you know, listen, on this side of eternity, the Bible says you and I see through a glass dimly. It's, you know, it's like the old mirrors that they used to look at in the ancient world. You couldn't see, you look, but you couldn't really see clearly. Paul says that's what it's like on this side of, of life. Things we see, we look at, they just don't make sense. But a lot of things, he says, he says you'll never, they will never be clear until we get over there and then we see it clearly. In the meantime, between now and then, we see through a glass dimly. What does that mean? It, okay, it means that we have to move through the transitions of our lives with humility and with an assurance, Jesus said, of his love and presence that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of this world. That how much do, I, I may not answer every question to your satisfaction. You may even feel at times abandoned or neglected. Please understand, Jesus would say, I know that feeling. Think about it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt it. He felt it. We you know what he says? I may not always give you the answers to everything, but I will give you me. I give you me. And that's God's ultimate answer of love. He loves us that much. He calls us to the growing, vibrant life. It's a commitment. I, my prayer, prayer for all of us is that we, we don't just go through the motions and move through life, but that our love for God is real and alive and abounding, fruitful, growing, working through things, getting better, and blessing people all along the way. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we love you, God, and we bless your name together. And we thank you this day, this good day that you have made. And my prayer, Lord, is that, that we would contend for the good things of the Lord and that we would seek, seek your word over our lives and that we would, we would not be afraid, Lord, of the, of the things that come in our directions, these transition points that oftentimes, Lord, seem so scary and difficult. But you know what, Lord? I know that you walk with us. And even when it doesn't make sense to us, even when you don't make sense to us sometimes, Lord, I know your love for us is so real, so profound, so beautiful, so meaningful, so lasting, that it just calls us to, to, to stick with you, Lord. And I just pray that we'd all be like trees growing by the rivers of living water. We'd be like people who bring forth their fruit in their season. So as everything else goes on, all the games we play, and all the things we do, and all the fun things we have, I pray that in the midst of it all, we would not lose sight of you and what you're calling us to become in you. Bless our closing minutes. Bless this song, which testifies, or in a way connects directly to the goodness of God, that it reveals itself in all of creation. But also, Lord, I pray you bless our time of giving. May we also not only give of our resource, but give of ourselves. Open vessels, growing vessels. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.